a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, shows like this exist because truth doesn't mind being questioned. On the other hand, a lie doesn't like being challenged. I know there are many voices out there speaking up, challenging the lies, promoting the truth. I'm just one of them, but I'm thankful that you're part of my audience today. Welcome and make yourself comfortable. If you are comfortable with wrong think, well, you already know. This is this is not about proving how right I am and, and how everybody else should see things my way. It's It's about learning to think clearly and independently for yourself and not being at the mercy of highly paid spinmeisters and, you know, blow-dried propaganda dispensers to tell you what you're supposed to think. So I commend you for taking charge of your own thinking and commend you for, uh, if you're just dabbling in wrong things for the first time, having the courage to do so. Heaven knows it's, uh, it's not the easiest thing. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, also SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, GovernYourIncome.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So today you're going to get some pretty difficult truths. And, and I'm, I feel like I need to give this, this uh, warning. You know, this is, this, is the, this is the Surgeon General's warning. There's some hard facts that we're going to be facing today, particularly regarding the economic storm that is looming before us. I know our attention has been mostly focused on, you know, the COVID-19 response and retaining our freedoms in the face of a real on, all-out onslaught against your personal liberty. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. It's not like, gee, we were distracted and all this other stuff took place. But sometimes it's hard to forget that there has been a building economic storm, and we're going to face some of the hard facts about that today. But in the meantime, one of the good things about difficult times is that every one of us has the opportunity to learn a degree of resiliency simply by going through them. Now, I'm not suggesting, therefore, it's pleasant, you know, put a smile on your face. I mean, it helps to be positive. But I'm not going to pretend like hard times or anything but hard times. They're, they're hard for a reason. But if you can understand that this is a season that we're passing through right now, it feels like it's taking a long time and probably looks like, man, this, this is going to go on, you know, for the foreseeable future. But we've been through difficult things before. As individuals, as a society, as civilizations, we have seen difficult times come and go. My message to you is that nothing matters more than retaining your values, being the the best version of yourself that you can be, as true as you can to the things that you really believe. Because on the other side of all this, we're going to be better for having gone through it. Not that we would have chosen to go through it, not that uh, you know we wanted that polishing and refining, but that's the opportunity that's in front of us. And I suspect that if you are the kind of person who, number one, has found this show, and secondly, is willing to listen to this program, you're probably one of those people who's okay with suffering some discomfort or even legitimate pain 
in order to become a more refined, better version of yourself. And I will just add, you know, as hard as this may be, with God's help, it's all possible. In fact, really, that's, that's going to be the key to success. The people who seek God's help are the ones who are going to find, you know what, we got through it just fine. I've got an article here from James Howard Kunzler that has a very tough but thorough analysis of what we are facing. And it's, it's appropriately titled, uh, No Time for Crybabies. So, like I said, diving right into the tough love, here we go. James Howard Kunstler says, you know what most America wants? Most of America wants? He says, I'll tell you. America wants daddy to step up and say, okay, you can stop being insane now. Really, enough is enough. But the trouble is, America is short on daddies these days. That's what happens when you throw the patriarchy on the old garbage barge. Now, Mr. Trump was kind of a daddy, but to many women especially, he was the wrong kind. He was the bad daddy, the worst kind of daddy. The kind who makes you clean up your room and come home before midnight. So they traded him in for a demented grandpa. He just wants to fondle you, and not in a good way. But family decorum requires that we don't talk about that. In the meantime, we can do whatever we feel like. He says it's a fact that more educated folks are more susceptible to mass delusion. And the reason will surprise you. It's because of status seeking. Yes, even more than money, we're hardwired for it. And status is liable to send money in your direction anyway. Among the educated managerial class, going along with everybody else is crucial because careerism in a bureaucratic system, public or private, demands it. If you seek to rise in the hierarchy or are just angling for brownie points, you must appear to subscribe to the reigning beliefs of the moment, no matter how crazy. And the punishments are severe for appearing to not go along, like losing your career and livelihood and all prospects of a comfortable life. So the main belief of the moment is that battling the invisible menace called COVID-19 requires the most extreme measures, and that anyone against that is an enemy, a domestic terrorist. Thus, it is most urgent to vaccinate every human being in the nation. Why? Well, because Dr. Tony Fauci, America's doctor, says so. Why does he say so? Because the COVID-19 vaccines are the crowning achievement in his long, vainglorious quest to bring forth a world-saving magic cure for a dread disease. And since Dr. Fauci is the science incarnate, and the science must be followed, because, come on, we are modern people in a modern world ruled by science, we must follow Dr. Fauci. Now, James Howard Kunstler says, but it's obvious now, after a year on the scene, that the vaxes work poorly at best to protect against infection or control the spread, and at worst, induce terrible long-term damage to organs, blood vessels, and the immune system. The vaxes can kill you or gravely disable you. He says the statistics in the CDC's VAERS registry shows this in no uncertain terms. 1,003,992 COVID vax adverse events reported including 21,745 deaths linked to them through January 7th. And these figures are said to be deeply understated due to the poor design and difficulty in using the VAERS website with its clunky, outdated code that the CDC refuses to fix. Now, he says Dr. Fauci has avoided addressing these adverse reactions and the negative efficacy of the vaccines. He just simply states the vaccines are safe and effective. That so many Americans believe him, despite all the evidence and go along with the crusade to vax up everybody, is proof that they are insane. 
But he says now that the whole story is unraveling, they are more determined than ever to stick to the script. COVID-19 has been their security blanket for two years. As long as it was in the picture, raging and killing as an invisible demon, it could be the focus of all of their free-floating terror. Terror of what, you might ask? Well, of the meaningless, alienation, and debility induced by the managerial class in its own sick institutions and corporations. In short, the 21st century America that the managers evolved in and supported, a culture of junk food, junk work, junk art, junk environments, junk government, junk economics, and lately, junk science. A sickening panorama of systems out of control and entering failure mode. Now, confronting the disaster of its own incapacity to sustain a healthy culture and an economy with a future, the managerial class went nuts. Its insane actions are now killing people while trying, to, while seeking to punish those who refuse to walk sheepishly into America's version of the gas chamber, the Anthony Fauci vaccines. James Howard Kunstler says, one way out of a trap like this is to follow your insanity into an all-out Gotterdammerung chaos and destruction. That's the Hitler way, preceded by a period of psychotic, totalitarian social control and sadistic scapegoating. He says, I don't recommend it. But when it's over, there's not much left to assist the continuity of the human project. But we are led at the moment by a very party of chaos that's making all of those moves. Check the boxes. Social control freakery? Check. Punishment unto the unvaxxed? Check. Loony war drumming? Check. The cries for more lockdowns and punishments will grow shrill as Omicron burns across the land, presenting a fair chance of putting a stop to COVID-19. We'll know in a couple of weeks where this is going. Will all those telltale all-cause deaths mount in the insurance companies, suggesting the vaccines seeded millions with lurking illness? Will the public turn on Dr. Fauci and run him from public health to rough justice? Will the inept Joe Biden regime start World War III in Ukraine, a place of no real interest to us or the South China Sea, just to change the channel? He says you can feel the paradigm straining to shift under your feet now. For that degenerate managerial class and its psychotically woke-up minions on the campuses and in the newsrooms, this thing would likely go the Schopenhauer way. The new paradigm is at first ridiculed, then violently opposed, then accepted as self-evident. Snap your fingers and they'll come out of it just like that. But he says the rest of us who are left on dry land right now as an economic riptide takes the drowning out to sea, we have a lot of work to do. And he says it'll be no time for crybabies. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I wasn't kidding, was I, right? I got off to a rip-roaring start. I dove headfirst into the uh, rough news, the, the tough truth, if you will. But I won't apologize for it. And look, I know you're not here because you're some kind of a masochist and you enjoy pain or you enjoy, you know, hearing unpleasant truths. I suspect you are probably, in our growing audience of wrong thinkers, just because uh, you you understand that somewhere underneath all the confusion and all of the, the jockeying back and forth for power, the truth really matters. At a very individual level, it matters to understand what's going on and, and to understand what you and I can do within our respective spheres of influence to make a difference. 
And I want to talk for just a second about influence. Um, i got a friend of mine, John Harvey. He's a businessman from Salt Lake City, very successful guy. He's also a very outspoken defender of freedom. And the other day he was attending a, a meeting on Capitol Hill in Utah. And uh, this is prior to the legislative session, which just started up. And uh, he, he was there meeting with the governor, among other people, and actually posed for a picture with the governor. And it's kind of sad how many people were calling him out. John, you sold out. Why would you go and pose with Spencer Cox? Why would you pose with the governor? No, granted, among freedom lovers, the governor is not exactly a, an inspiring figure. He's more like a, you know, a political suit insert. You know, he's just he's the, the typical politician. Shades of Mitt Romney. But I got to commend John for doing this. Rather than, you know, drawing a hard line, I will not even pose with someone who opposes me or someone whose uh, ideals don't line up with me. He maintained open channels of communication. In fact, he was able to talk about some very important things with the governor. And while to some people that may seem like a sellout, I think there's something a little bit deeper at work. And I think that's an example of someone using their influence as wisely as they can where they happen to be at that moment. Now, look, it may seem really principled. I'll turn my back on everybody who doesn't agree with me. But if you're serious about changing the world, at some level, you're going to have to change hearts and minds. And that means you're going to have to engage other people, including people that uh, you don't agree with. Be willing to do it. That doesn't mean you have to sell out your values, but it just means be willing to use your influence as wisely as you can. Pick those battles carefully. Speaking of picking your battles... This may not be a popular sentiment, but there's a lot of folks out there with a perpetual sense of being offended and looking for reasons to be offended. Thomas L. Knapp, writing for the uh, William Lloyd Garrison Center, has a great article on pockets, legs, and polarization. He starts out with a quote from Dr. Timothy Snyder, who says, For the people who actually study the origins of civil wars, not just in the U.S., but as a class of events, America doesn't look good right now with its high degree of polarization, with its alternative reality, with its celebration of violence. Now, Snyder's remarks are specific in context, he points out, but Thomas Knapp says they concern a prospective attempt to steal the 2024 presidential election on behalf of Donald Trump, so he does seem to have a point. America certainly is polarized, or at least most Americans seem to think so. And since polarization is about what people think, it kind of amounts to the same thing. Alternative realities and celebrations of violence are both symptoms and causes of such polarization. But the polarization itself seems to be the big problem. And so he asked, what can we do about polarization, though? Well, as long as there are issues, people will hold different opinions on those issues and polarize on, that is, flock to opposite and mutually exclusive sides of those issues. Now, as the number of contentious issues grows and larger groups coalesce around the bundles of those positions, a more general polarization springs up and scales up in intensity from single-issue polarization. So, here are some good examples. He says, you and I may disagree on whether Paul McCartney died in 1965 and was replaced by a body double. Yet we could still get along quite well. We might also disagree on whether Val Val Kilmer should have received an Oscar for his portrayal of Doc Holliday in Tombstone and be able to have a beer together without it devolving into a brawl. But sooner or later, you'll cross some final red line, probably by suggesting that pineapple is a legitimate pizza topping, and then, well, we're just done with each other, aren't we? 
Now, he says, when it comes to political issues, Thomas Jefferson offered a useful standard. The legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But he says, it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. End quote. So Thomas L. Knapp says the way to reduce political polarization is to reduce the number and kinds of issues subject to politics. Jefferson marked out a useful starting point, but he says Henry David Thoreau went him one better. Quote, I heartily accept the motto, that government is best which governs least, and I should like to see it acted up to more rapidly and systematically. Carried out, it finally amounts to this, which I also believe. That government is best which governs not at all. And when men are prepared for it, that will be the kind of government which they will have. End quote. Now, Thomas L. Knapp says, look, as a wordsmith, I'm nowhere near Jefferson or Thoreau in skill. But let me offer my own unworthy summary of the dual lesson. The way to reduce political polarization is to give up politics as an instrument through which each of us claims an entitlement to run the lives of others. Do you you grasp what he's saying here? And I understand this is going to push some people in a direction they don't really want to go, or at least it's going to push their their thinking in a direction that they may not be comfortable with. But the idea here is, if at some level, your solutions for what ails society is to control other people, whether it's through the force of government or something else, if you're trying to control others, you're probably not on the right side. In fact, you're probably coming at it from the wrong place. Okay, you say, then what are we supposed to do to solve society's problems? It's going to, it's going to take something to make things work. No, you're right, it is. And the thing that it's going to take that, that so few people seem inclined to, to embrace is persuasion. If you're serious about changing people's hearts, you've got to work on your ability to persuade them. And that's not a matter of pleading, and it's not a matter of slick-talking your way, you know, past their defenses so that they agree with you. It means you're going to have to learn to reach out to them in such a way that they will listen to what you have to say. Maybe not at that moment. They may, in fact, the first time you speak truth to someone, especially, you know, difficult truths, the reaction often is, you know, it's, it's violent. It's angry. I don't want to see that. Get that out of my sight. Get that out of my head. And that's just a natural defense for people who are bumping into the limits of their mental universe. They're just not ready to examine, much less accept, that particular truth. So rather than force it on them, and there are plenty of examples today of things that are being forced on us, you know, CRT, I know, officially it doesn't exist, but at the same time, if you try to keep it from existing, why, that's just the most racist thing ever. Go for the persuasion instead. And here's the most powerful method of persuasion. I've learned this through sad experience. Well, it's actually been good experience, but I had a lot of sad experience before that. If you want to get people to consider a truth that you have to offer, you got to lose the need to win. You've got to lose the need to dominate them and to beat them into submission and to get them to say, you're right. Instead, we have to take a higher road. That means you speak the truth with love. 
And when someone reacts, as they sometimes will, with negativity or violence even, you can't say that to me. Don't return that anger in kind. The idea is there's enough anger out there. We don't need to bring more into the situation. Speak the truth with love. Let them come to the truth on their own terms. But I really mean that when I say speak the truth with love. I mean, don't just condescendingly, well, here's your truth. Now, have fun with it. Actually speak the truth to them like you love them and value them. And you're not going to stop just because you don't see eye to eye on this particular issue. Watch what happens. Hearts do change, although it does take time. But be patient. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. By the way, this is my invitation to you to please subscribe to my show notes. Very simple matter. You just go to thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes down at the bottom of whatever show notes page you click on. You'll see a subscribe button. Punch in your email address, and I will drop a copy of my show notes into your inbox every day when I do the show. It's really that simple. And I don't sell your email information or trade it to anybody else. This is just for my listeners, and it's just for your convenience. I understand a lot of people don't have time to listen to the entire program. But if you want to follow up on the articles or the various uh, commentators that I've spoken to, this is a great place to start. So I'm really in awe of the people out there who make it worth your time to read their work. I'm always on the prowl for people who are, are, are bringing light and truth to the situation as opposed to just fear or, you know, distrust or anger, which uh, there are a lot of writers out there that can do this. But Mary Anna Alice, I'm sorry, Margaret Anna Alice, if I'm going to give you her name, I might as well give it to you right. She has a substack that I have found uh, well worth my time. And I'm going to warn you that, you know, this isn't like, you know, a little simple, well, we'll just sit down and, you know, casually browse, you know, whatever, you know, she's talking about here. It's going to take some time. I'm looking at an article right now. This is Letter to a Governing Body. And it's obvious that she has put an intense amount of work into distilling her thoughts and her points and making them easily understandable, but also backing them up. So it's not just, you know, free form, you know, here's what I'm thinking, you know, this is where my thoughts are going today. No, she really backs it up. And this is a letter that uh, was uh, adapted from what she says was her letter to the Washington State Board of Health. So, in other words, if you read this letter, you may actually find some good tidbits of ways you could approach governing bodies yourself or anybody who's involved in making decisions related, especially to COVID-19. Margaret Anna Alice says, several of my readers are already using this letter in efforts to combat employer mandates. If you use this tool, she says, all I ask is that you include credit and link back to this post. In fact, she says, I'd love to hear about it if you're willing to document your actions in the comments, too. And she starts with a quote from from a book called Defying Hitler by Sebastian Hafner. Quote, everything went strictly by the book using means that were permitted by the Constitution. At first, there were emergency decrees, decrees rather, by the President of the Reich. 
and later a bill was passed by a two-thirds majority of the Reichstag giving the government unlimited legislative powers perfectly in accordance with the rules for changing the Constitution. Now, at this point, Margaret Anna Ellis says, I am writing because you are considering legislation or policies related to COVID-19. And she says, although this letter is addressed to a governing body, I'm actually writing to you, you, the living, thinking, feeling individuals who comprise this body. I'm asking that you listen, not in your capacity as a member, but as a fellow human being, as a neighbor, as a friend. For nearly a year, you have been gradually conditioned to view the unvaccinated as enemies. You've been subjected to a relentless propaganda campaign designed to divide you from us, to dehumanize us, to paint us as science deniers, conspiracy nuts, spreaders of disease and threats to society. And here she quotes from Milton Meyer, his book, They Thought They Were Free, the Germans, 1933 to 45. Quote, Men under pressure are first dehumanized and only then demoralized, not the other way around. Organization and specialization, system, subsystem, and supersystem are the consequence, not the cause, of the totalitarian spirit. Now, Margaret Anna Alice says the United States Holocaust Museum describes this process as defining the enemy, the excluded. Quote, one crucial factor in creating a cohesive group is to define who is excluded from membership. Nazi propagandists contributed to their regime's policies by publicly identifying groups for exclusion, justifying their outsider status, and inciting hatred or cultivating indifference. But a second, more sinister aspect of the Nazi myth was that not all Germans were welcome in the new community. Propaganda helped to define who would be excluded from the new society and justified measures against the outsiders. End quote. Margaret Anna Alice says, regardless of what the propagandists have told you, we are not your enemies. We are your neighbors. We are your colleagues. We are your friends. We're your family members, your grandparents, your parents, your siblings, your children. We are human beings just like you. We love, we live, we think, we feel. We have merely made a different choice from you. And contrary to what the propagandists tell you, that choice poses no threat to you or our shared community. I'm going to just hit the pause button here for a second and say, is that not refreshing? I mean, she's saying it about as powerfully and directly as it can be said. But what a different approach from the anger of, you will listen to every dang word I have to say. You know, she's, she's taking a much more subtle approach here. Do you suppose that people who occupy these governing bodies would be more inclined to listen than if she comes at him, you know, both barrels blazing. Now from here, she links to a CDC paper titled outbreak of SARS CoV-2 infections, including COVID-19 vaccine breakthrough infections associated with large gatherings from Barnstable County, Massachusetts, July, 2021. And the paper explains that the study found three quarters of cases occurred in fully vaccinated people. And she has a citation from it, quote, it also found no significant difference in the viral load present in the breakthrough infections occurring in fully vaccinated people and the other cases, suggesting the viral load of vaccinated and unvaccinated persons infected with the coronavirus is similar, end quote. Now, she also points out that news stories 
documenting COVID outbreaks in fully vaccinated groups keep emerging, and she links to each one of them, including cruise ships like the MS Europa, MS Europa 2, Mein Scheif 6, and Idenova. While reporting on a third Royal Caribbean cruise ship outbreak, the Miami Herald noted the CDC reported there were 5,013 confirmed COVID-19 cases on cruise ships between December 15th and December 29th, compared to just 162 cases two weeks prior, November 30th to December 14th. According to the CDC's database for COVID-19 on cruise ships, as of Wednesday, all 92 cruise ships currently sailing in U.S. waters had people on board infected by COVID-19. End quote. So Margaret Anna Ellis says after Puerto Rico health insurer MMM MultiHealth lost a court case that struck down their mandate and restored employees' rights to decide about what would be injected into their bodies, the company instituted segregation. One building housed fully vaccinated employees while the second building housed unvaccinated employees. Guess which building experienced a COVID outbreak and which one didn't? It's the opposite of what the media tells you. In this perfect real-world case control study, the building with the fully vaccinated employees suffered an outbreak while the unvaccinated remained protected by their natural immunity, which has been proven superior to vaccination by 145 research studies to date. And yes, she does link to those studies. And then consider this scenario at an Antarctica station, 100% vaxxed, 100% remote, and quarantined. Still, outbreak in two-thirds. And she says, I know what you're thinking. Okay, but what about the hospitals being overwhelmed by the unvaccinated? Well, big surprise. You've been deceived about that, too. At a regional New York hospital serving a community with an under 50% vaccination rate, 90% of the individuals admitted to the hospital were documented to have received this vaccine. The latest UK data reveals that vaccinated individuals comprise the majority of all hospitalizations and deaths in the over 50 group, a pattern that's becoming increasingly common. If a vaccine does not prevent people from spreading or contracting COVID, being hospitalized or dying from COVID, What possible justification can you provide for instituting policies such as mandating the COVID-19 vaccine, requiring passports, or detaining individuals and families in quarantine facilities? And she says that's only part of the story. The other part of the story, the one the propagandists don't show you, is the CDC's vaccine surveillance system has just surpassed an historic 1 million adverse event reports. For the first, for the uh, COVID vaccines, rather, that includes 21,382 deaths, 5,252 of which occurred within the first 48 hours following the injection. And she says, contemplate that for just a moment. Nearly a quarter of reported deaths occurred within the first two days after vaccination. Oh, and by the way, she supplies some charts to back this assertion up. We're going to come back to this article by Margaret Anna Alice. It's linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Well worth your time to sit down and take this one in for yourself. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just going to give a quick shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I talked yesterday about uh, some of the uh, supply chain challenges that are approaching. And you're going to get even more information that hopefully will spur you to action coming up in the second hour of the program. Because, uh, look, we, we are just, we're in a very precarious situation. And this is not time to lose your cool and run around, you know, with your arms in the air screaming. It's, uh, it's time to take some decisive steps to improve your situation, to hedge against <clears throat> the uncertainty that is building all around us. This is where lifesavingfood.com can be a huge source of peace of mind. Yes, it's food storage with a 25-year shelf life. There are lots of different varieties to choose from. You can get, uh, you know, full-on food storage programs, a year supply, right down to a 72-hour kit, to individual buckets that are easily stackable, but still have the same great freeze-dried and dehydrated foods. All you have to do is add water. Best of all, as a listener to this program, you get a 20% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax. Click on the link I provide in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It's lifesavingfood.com. So I'm sharing this article with you from Mar- Margaret Anna Alice. She has a substack, and it is uh, this is one of the most comprehensive articles. It's called Letter to a Governing Body. And I think it's a great example of how to go about making the case to someone who is in a position of authority. Now, look, I get frustrated with politicians. I get frustrated with bureaucrats. There's times that I'm feeling something very close to contempt for all of them. Just because the the systems have been so thoroughly corrupted, it's really hard to find anybody who, um, I, I think, behaves respectably and restrains themselves. There are some who do. So I don't want to throw everybody under the bus, but... It's, it's hard to feel enthusiastic about shaking hands with people who are taking an active role in destroying your livelihood, destroying your liberties, destroying your freedom of conscience. But if you want to persuade them, if you want to shift their thinking, or at least give them the possibility of recognizing something they may not have recognized yet, you're going to have to become more powerfully persuasive. Sheer force and anger, you'll get reactions. But it's not going to be the kind of reactions that actually accomplish anything helpful. So, there are a number of charts that Margaret Anna Alice includes here, and this includes, you know, the Vaxil vaccine mortality reports. I get you. I get it. This is... This is probably going to get me flagged on Facebook again. This will be my second strike here for for even sharing this information. But I think it's worth considering. I think it's worth challenging. Margaret Anna Alice says, using Pfizer's own six-month data, this this Canadian COVID Care Alliance presentation and the accompanying PowerPoint slides demonstrate that the COVID-19 vaccinations cause significantly more harm than good. Indeed, Pfizer's data shows the absolute risk reduction from its vaccine was only 0.84%, whereas there was a 300% increase in risk for adverse events. Now, she says, let me repeat that. Our government, our workplaces, our organizations are demanding that its citizens accept a 300% increased risk of adverse events, including death, 
in exchange for a less than 1% risk reduction of contracting COVID. Now, does that risk-benefit ratio sound reasonable to you? Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson are gambling with our lives at 0% risk of liability thanks to their FDA-issued emergency use authorizations. A recent article titled Risks of Myocarditis, Pericarditis, and Cardiac Arrhythmias Associated with COVID-19 Vaccination or SARS-CoV-2 Infection, published in Nature Medicine, revealed that 1 in 100 of all vaccinated individuals were admitted to the hospital or died with arrhythmia or irregular heart heartbeat. Now, I'm going to quote you from the article. This has a lot of numbers, but stay with me. Of the 38,615,491,000 vaccinated individuals included in our study, 385,508, 1%, were admitted to the hospital with or died from cardiac arrhythmia at any time in the study period, either before or after the vaccination. 86,754, that would be 0.2% of these, occurred in the 1 to 28 days after any dose of vaccine. Of those who were admitted or died, 39,897, that's about 10.3%, had a SARS-CoV-2 positive test with 29,694, roughly 7.7%, having a positive test before vaccination. There were 7,795 deaths with cardiac arrhythmia recorded as the cause of death. 1,108 had a SARS-CoV-2 positive test. Written by CDC and FDA authors, a recent paper, COVID-19 vaccine safety in children ages 5 to 11 years, indicates adverse events were underreported in VAERS by a factor of 6.5. And she says this underreporting factor is even likely to be higher given the immeasurable pressure being put on hospitals, physicians, and medical professionals not to fulfill their legal obligation to file VAERS reports for those who are injured or who die following injection. Now, it's estimated as many as 388,000 Americans may have died due to the COVID vaccines to date. All-cause mortality has remained consistently elevated in 2021 as compared with 2020. As you've heard about on this program before, recently the CEO of an Indiana life insurance company reported a 40% increase in mortality in that 18 to 64-year-old age group during 2021, the first year of an unprecedented experiment in global mass vaccination. Now, for those of us who can't comprehend the monumental scale that spike in in mortality represents, statistician Matthew Crawford puts it in layman's terms. Quote, Davison described a 10% increase in mortality as a three-sigma standard deviation event. So that makes 40% a 12-sigma event. That's statistics talk for how far from ordinary unusual events are. So for clarification, a three-sigma event should happen around once every 300 or so years, and a six-sigma event should happen once every 300,000 years or so. We're talking about the proportion of the area under a normal curve that is, in sh- that is shaded in proportion to the total area. We really would need to zoom in on it quite a bit to detect it with the naked eye. But a 12-sigma event is where geeky statisticians who have seen enough tables to know the round numbers by heart have to look up the capacity of their software package to see if it's well-powered enough to perform the calculation. 
Whatever it is, it's far more likely that an asteroid collides with Indiana tomorrow, ejecting 400 basketball-sized fragments as it falls that each make a perfect swoosh through the nets in every cornfield basketball hoop in the Hoosier State two seconds before destroying all of human civilization. Really, I computed that in my head. End quote. (laughs) And if you're thinking, well, surely COVID deaths dropped following the mass vaccination rollout, well, that's false too. According to WebMD, 2021 COVID mortality rates had already surpassed 2020 rates by November. Now, given the skyrocketing risk for death and injuries after injection with these products, she asked, how can you defend coercing people to take it, let alone children? mRNA and DNA vaccine inventor Robert, uh, Dr. Robert Malone has issued a strident plea to immediately halt the injection of children with COVID-19 vaccines. A fervent message he also delivers in a video that she links to. This living bibliography compiled by Dr. Malone cites peer-reviewed references documenting COVID-19 vaccination adverse events that could harm children, currently 140 and counting. And children are dying after vaccination, possibly as many as 800 so far. She's linking to each of these, by the way. This is not just numbers she's pulling out of thin air. As of December 21st, 2021, 71 children dead under 18 have been logged in VARES. Now, there's still much, much more to this article. I've only scratched the surface. But she's, she's making this plea to the goodness of those people who are still able to hear it, those who are part of a governing body saying if you pass discriminatory or uh, coercive legislation, you will be remembered for your complicit cowardice. You won't be excused from accepting responsibility for your actions. If you choose humanity over authoritarianism, if you choose community over division, if you choose freedom over enslavement, you will also be remembered, but in a different way. You will be remembered for your heroism in the face of a formidable political, social, and historical pressure rivaling those weathered nearly a century ago. I guess the bottom line is we all have to take sides. Think about the pressure on those people, you know, serving in those governing bodies. Help them, persuade them to make the right decision. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Now, if this is your first time aboard, I want you to know I'm going to be gentle with you. I'm not here to beat you into submission with my opinions, but I am definitely going to offer some opinions that I promise you will likely uh, push you out of your comfort zone. Now, there's no expectation that you have to agree with these. I'm merely asking you, please consider them. Do with them as you will. If, if it makes sense, you know, after after you've had a chance to, to digest it and think about it, if, if it makes sense, then, uh, yeah, by all means, you know, adapt uh, the information into your own thinking. But uh, this is not about to, you have to think a certain way. This is merely encouraging you to consider that there might be some different perspectives or a different vantage point that would offer a more complete view of the situation. 
And as always, my goal is to to bring these facts into the light without adding more anger or more fear to the situation, because we've got plenty of that to go around. Got some great sponsors who make this show possible as well. They include LifesavingFood.com, HSLAmmo.com, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, MonticelloCollege.org, GovernYourIncome.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. So I've got some fairly heavy topics to to drop on you in this hour. Uh, Probably the heaviest one is an article by Brandon Smith with the lowdown on how the Fed has triggered a stagnationary disaster that will hit hard this year. And again, my goal here is not to get you in panic mode or to convince you, you know, it's all hopeless. These are just hard facts that really need to be faced. And there's still time, you know, for you and I to take steps to to improve our position. But we're all going to get our feet wet, okay? This, there's, there's really no way to, to avoid this. Now, something I make a very concerted effort to do is to avoid politics wherever possible. I'm of the opinion that politics tends to poison everything that it touches. And if you can think of any issues that that uh, haven't uh, been politicized, that, that, that haven't become a power struggle, you know, I'm anxious to hear about them. But to my thinking, pretty much everything that politics touches turns into a big power struggle. Well, Charles Hugh Smith says politics is dead. And by politics, he's talking democracy, representational democracy. And here's his explanation as to what killed it. He says, here's politics in America now. Come with mega millions or don't even bother to show up. He says, representational democracy, a.k.a. politics, as a solution to social and economic problems, has passed away. It did not die a natural death. Politics developed a cancer very early in life, circa the early 1800s, caused by wealth outweighing public opinion. The cancer spread slowly but metastasized in the past few decades, spreading to every nook and cranny of our society and economy as democracy devolved into an invitation-only auction of elections and political favors. I mean, so far, I think he's batting a thousand here. He says politics might have had a fighting chance, but three forces destroyed the nation, or betrayed the nation, rather, and its citizenry. Number one, the Federal Reserve transferred trillions of dollars of unearned wealth into the feeding troughs of the super wealthy and corporations, vastly increasing the wealth the top 0.01% had to buy elections and favors. The Federal Reserve cloaked its treachery with jargon, quantitative easing, stimulus, etc., and then stabbed the nation's representational democracy in the back. The Supreme Court betrayed the nation's representative democracy, that's the second point, by labeling corporations buying elections and political favors a form of free speech. Now, he says, please don't hurt yourself laughing too hard. The Supreme Court's equating wealth, buying elections and favors with individual citizens' sacrosanct right of free speech was a knife in the back of the nation and its citizenry. Number three... The two political parties betrayed their traditional voter bases to kneel at the altar of corporate elite wealth. Wealth which bought elections and political favors. The Democrats, traditional champions of the workforce in the 20th century, abandoned workers in favor of serving their corporate masters, masking their betrayal with fine-sounding phrases. The Republican Party, traditionally promoters of big business, Wall Street, banks, megacorporations 
had maintained a narrow but crucial interest in trust-busting, limiting monopolies, to defend free enterprise and small business from the predations of monopolies and cartels. Well, those days are long past. Just as the Democratic Party tossed the working class overboard to the sharks, the Republican Party walked small businesses right off the gangplank into the voracious jaws of cartels and globalized, financialized corporate sharks. Now, to cloak their betrayal and treachery, he says the parties have pursued a divide-and-conquer distraction game pushing half the nation into one-size-fits-all enemies lists with labels that have lost all meaning other than as means to promote divisiveness and rancor. Liberal and conservative, socialist and capitalist, etc. It's not the citizenry who are deplorable. It's the party's corporate derriere-kissing toadies, lackeys, apparatchiks, purveyors of propaganda, enforcers, apologists, sycophants, grifters, and leaders who manage to greatly increase their private wealth while serving the public. <laughs> That's in quotes, of course. Charles Hugh Smith says, the three, these three betrayals of public trust and representation, representational democracy caused the demise of politics as a solution to social and economic problems. Politics has been stripped to its essence, an invitation-only auction of elections and political favors. The price to watch from the rear of the auction is $1 million. To actually place a bid, the minimum is $10 million. But the winning bids are actually, or generally, much higher. Lobbying, campaign contributions, bogus think tanks, and philanthro-capitalist foundations are all part of the auction funding. So here's politics in America now. Come with mega millions or don't even bother to show up. Choose which enemies list you want to be on. There's not much choice. Oh, and don't forget to put a flower on the grave of representational democracy. I mean, I've looked this over and I've tried to think, okay, where, where is he getting this wrong? I don't think he's wrong. I don't think he's missing the, the point at all here. I think he's actually right on the money. So I'll link to this article in the show notes. I would encourage you to check it out for yourself. Now, I'm not trying to tell you that you shouldn't be involved in politics at any level. I know people who are, you know, answering what they feel is a call to stand up and actually run for office to be the person who makes the difference. But I have yet to talk to a single person who's actually thrown their name in the hat, you know, or thrown their hat in the ring, whatever the the metaphor is here, who hasn't come away a little bit educated and a little bit disillusioned at the same time with what is required to succeed in politics. I think about James Altucher, who several years ago decided he was going to do a run for Congress. And I haven't seen much from Altucher lately, so I don't, I don't know what he's up to these days. Very gifted writer, very uh, good motivational, you know, individual. But when he decided, yeah, I'm going to run for Congress, I, he, was, he was feeling very um, enthusiastic about his prospects of making a difference. I mean, it was Mr. Smith goes to Washington kind of stuff. But he quickly ran headlong into the reality that as a candidate, he could not be perfectly honest. In fact, one of the first things he talks about was he sat down with some of the party, you know, heads who were ready to consider him and looking at him as whether or not he was going to be a serious candidate. And the very first thing they asked him is, show us on paper where you're going to get the money to make this run. 
We want you to show us. Where's the funding going to come from? <clears throat> Work it out for us right here on paper. How are you going to come up with enough money to actually fund your campaign? So the idea that wealth is being used to drive those political favors and, and, and positions, that's not a wrong assertion. It's, it's true. But he says the more chilling thing was they said, oh, and we have some other concerns too. Among those other concerns that these party apparatchiks had was that uh, you can't be honest on this issue, or on this issue, you can't say what you really think. And the conclusion that James Altucher came to was, I really can't be myself. I can't be authentic and expect to go anywhere in politics. I mean, if you think about it in those terms... Suddenly, it doesn't look like quite the noble, well, I'm just engaged in public service, and yes, I will take all the adulation you can give me. Instead, it starts looking like something very different, very amoral, in which politicians will say whatever they need to say in order to get elected, and then once they're in power, they have a tendency to do whatever they have to do, no matter how shady, no matter how sleazy, in order to keep the money flowing that will keep them in power. Now, I know there may be some exceptions to the rule here. And there may be some people who sincerely are, you know, making a good effort. I look at Rand Paul calling out Dr. Fauci, and I think, yep, I'm glad he's where he is. But generally, politics is a corrupting force. The more problems we can solve without it, the better off we're going to be. But we got to get in the habit of solving our own problems first. Maybe we should work on that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. This program is made possible by my sponsors. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there was a time... When I was uh, teetering out there on my toddler legs and just getting things going, that I would ask my listeners to please consider becoming a regular monthly supporter of the program. You still have that option, but I don't ask for it. And the reason I don't ask for it is because I have great sponsors who help to make it possible. They keep the wolves away from my door so that I can spend my time finding the best guests, the best information that I can then share with you. Among those sponsors the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. Now, if you or someone you know anywhere in the state of Utah is looking for a home or a home loan, I should say, if you're looking for a VA loan, a traditional loan, a reverse mortgage, maybe you just want to refinance your existing mortgage, please consider talking to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. I make it real easy to get in touch with her. There's a link directly to her email in my show notes. You can also call 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Let her know that her advertising message reached your ears through this program. So I know a lot of us uh, feel pretty good about being part of the resistance. I know I do. I, I find purpose in thinking, you know what? Sometimes it's uncomfortable and it's... Sometimes not that pleasant when people are very openly disapproving or disagreeing with you. But it feels good to stand for something. And I know that uh, there are a lot of people who categorize themselves as the resistance. Well, I'm part of the resistance. Look at me. I'm resisting. Saw a very interesting article from Matt Rowe. This is on AmericanThinker.com. 
So you think you are resisting. And he draws a very interesting line here, and I, I don't disagree with him on this, but if you are not paying a price in some way, you might just be virtue signaling instead. Matt Rose says, I've seen a lot of reader comments lately in various media on government COVID mandates where commenters attack the victims in the story. For example, here's a January 15th Daily Wire article. New York restaurateur blasts Democratic senator's arrogance for flouting mask mandate. Thinks she's above the law. The story's about how U.S. Senator Kirsten Gildebrand is a hypocrite with respect to the state's COVID-19 mask mandate because she entered a restaurant without wearing a mask. Now, in this case, Matt Rose says, look, I agree with the point of the story. However, one reader commented on being turned away at a local restaurant for not wearing a mask as mandated by government authorities. The diner told the person at the door that he would just take his business elsewhere from then on, to which the host suggested that he just play the game and wear a mask. Many other commenters were outraged by the play the game comment. Most suggested or affirmed the decision never to patronize that establishment again and tell all your friends about it, too. Now, they responded as if the restaurant owner were some sort of collaborator, and many comparisons were made to the rise of the Nazis in Germany. Nonetheless, he says there is a significant difference here that matters regarding collaboration, an important point which I'll return to shortly. He says, one writer scolded me for defending the restaurant owner and for pointing out that the establishment could be shut down, which would create problems for the restaurateur and his employees. After all, they have bills to pay and families to feed. But he says, I suggested that these writers fight is not with this person, but instead with the government and that they should pick their battles more appropriately. He says, I added that they should vote, write articles and protest. I added, as I usually do, that it's easy to call for risky action by someone else at no risk to yourself. Then I was lectured by another commentator or another commenter rather about how One toothpick is easy to break and how a bunch of toothpicks are harder to break. A classic and very easy to understand analogy. I explained that randomly placed toothpicks are not hard to break and that properly organized and aligned toothpicks are called for. Why would the restaurateur risk anything for someone who just randomly walks in? Who's going to provide him and his employees with what they need to survive? Who would risk punishment by sneaking into his closed down place at night to buy a meal? Who would hire his waiters and cooks? Why should he bear the risk for change when so many others do not? Well, the essence of political resistance is that it must be organized and focused. It calls for leaders who can identify government weaknesses and find ways to exploit them. It requires funding and discipline. Until you have all that, you do not have a resistance. You have dissatisfaction. Once a genuine resistance is in place, we can discuss collaboration. A collaborator is someone who has something to gain by working with the oppressor. A collaborator is not someone who has everything to lose with no hope of support from the other dissatisfied members of the community. So meaningful resistance takes courage, and all those calling for resistance must be willing to risk something too, rather than just ask someone else to resist. Furthermore, those in the resistance must be energized and prepared to play the long game which is something most Americans on the right are not very good at doing. So refusing to wear a mask in the grocery store or in someone else's restaurant is not a risk. Okay, if you really want to put your money where your mouth is, 
He says, instead, refuse to wear it at your place of employment or at a hospital or some other place that's actually willing to enforce the mandate. See what price you are willing to pay for your freedom all by yourself. See whether it is punishment, financial sacrifice, or even worse. See if the risks are serious in a genuine serious in a genuine resistance movement because he says those risks have to be shared. Now, case in point, he says, uh, my son last week was admitted to the burn unit of a local hospital for a very rare and dangerous allergic reaction to a prescription drug. Stevens-Johnson syndrome. He says, check out the images if you want a real scare. Throwing a mask on was the last thing I ever thought about. Get it? But he says, until we have the level of organized resistance that I've described, we should stop pointing the finger at each other. That's a terrible waste of energy and it plays directly into the hands of those we intend to resist. After all, dividing us is exactly the strategy used by the government and the left to get what they want. And by the way, his son is home safe and sound. He says, thanks to the doctors, nurses, medical staff, and all those who prayed, lit candles, and cooked meals. So I think Matt Rowe has, uh, has something worth considering here. And I'm not suggesting, well, if you're not, uh, you know, being tarred and feathered, you're just not being effective. But it does kind of raise the question of, you know, if, if you're not, if you're sitting on your biscuit, never wanting to risk it, to quote Daryl from the office, are you really accomplishing anything? You know, there's times I actually feel, I don't know what it would be, survivor's guilt or something, that uh, that I'm not in, enduring more persecution or more pain than I currently am. And I get I get some pretty good pushback, and there's times where I feel like, oh man, I'm 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 risking something here. But I'll also acknowledge I feel like I I am not being asked a whole lot right now, not compared to people whose very livelihoods are on the line, and who are are really, you know, suffering in order to stand up for what they believe. And this is particularly true the people who, you know, reach the point where where they just decide. We can't take it here anymore. We're going to have to relocate. As I mentioned on yesterday's show, that is so much harder than it appears. There's so much more involved in uprooting your family and moving somewhere. I know of once I speak, because <laughs> it's something I've done in the last year. And it's, uh, you know, as discouraging as a lot of the COVID-19 stuff has been, as discouraging as the lockdowns and masks and just some of the, the general fear of the unknown has been, I can honestly say that uh, the act of trying to gather my possessions and move them from one place to another, actually, there's like several small moves spread out over the course of about a month and a half. It was awful. It's one of the very few times in my life where I, I actually was just like, you know what, God, if if you want to call me home, if, if you want to, uh, you know, give me a massive heart attack and bring me home right now, I'd be okay with that because moving sucks that bad. I know it sounds overly dramatic, but it really was a miserable experience. And yet, it was absolutely the right thing to do. I'm better for having gone through it, but I'm not going to pretend like it was fun. And I think that's kind of how we have to approach that need to make a stand. It ain't going to be fun, but it's necessary. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. If you'd like to subscribe to my show notes, just simply go to thebrianhideshow.com, click on the show notes, pick a day, any day. Down at the bottom of the page, you will see a subscribe button. All it requires is your email, which I will not give or trade or sell to anybody for any reason. It's just there so I can safely guide my daily show notes into your inbox on a regular basis. And hopefully you'll find some very useful information there. I've got a great article here that I've been waiting to share. And, you know, while so much of our attention has been focused, rightly focused, on the COVID power grabs, there's also an economic threat that has been growing by the minute. Brandon Smith is one of those writers who has earned my respect And I think he is a very credible source of information. So I wanted to share his lowdown on how the Fed has triggered a stagnationary disaster that will hit hard this year. And I'm sharing this in the hopes that you and I are not blindsided. Now, this was originally published at Birch Gold Group. So um, you'll notice toward the end of the article, there is kind of a, a pitch there for precious metals. But I want you to hear what Brandon Smith has to say about the prospect of a stagflationary disaster that is looming. He says, I don't think I can overstate the danger that the U.S. economy is in right now as we enter 2022. While most people are caught up in the ongoing drama of COVID-19, a real threat looms over the nation in the form of a stagnationary, a stagflationary rather, tidal wave. The mainstream media is attempting to place the blame on supply chain disruptions, but he says that's a misrepresentation of the issue. The two factors are indeed intertwined, but the reality is that inflation is the cause of supply chain disruptions, not the result of supply chain disruptions. So if we look at the underlying stats for price rises in essential products, we can get a clearer picture. Now, Brandon Smith says, before I get into my argument, I really want to stress that this is a precarious time, and I suggest that people prepare accordingly. He says, in just the past few months, I've seen my personal expenses rise at least 20% overall, and I'm sure it's the same or worse for most of you. Stocking necessities and safe haven investments with intrinsic value like physical precious metals are a good choice for protecting whatever buying power your dollars have left. So let's start with higher prices everywhere. Brandon Smith says the consumer price index or CPI is officially at the highest levels in 40 years. CPI measurements often diminish the scale of the problem because they do not include things like food, energy and housing, which are core expenses for the public. CPI calculations have also been adjusted over the past few decades by the government to express a more positive view on inflation. So if we look at the inflation numbers on shadows at shadow stats calculated according to the same methods they used in the 1980s, we see a dramatic increase in CPI, which paints a more dire but also a more accurate picture. So here's some of the unpleasant truth. You might want to grab a chair in case your, your knees get weak on you here. U.S. food prices have spiked to levels not seen since 2008 at the onset of the credit and derivatives collapse that brought about tens of trillion dollars in Federal Reserve bailouts. Now, if we look beyond the 2008 crisis, food costs do not see a similar jump until the 1980s. Rising food prices in the U.S. are often obscured by creative accounting and shrinkflation, shrinking packages but rising prices. 
But if we look at global food prices, the average is a 30% jump in the past year. Rental and home prices have also gone into the stratosphere. Rental costs went up around 18% in 2021. And this is an extension of a trend that's been prevalent for the past decade. Prices have been rising for a while. It's just that now the avalanche has accelerated. Home prices are currently out of the range of most new potential home buyers. Values jumped 16% in the past year alone, with the average property costing $408,000. Home sales continue to remain elevated compared to two years ago, despite inflating prices for one reason and one reason only, and that is the mass migration of Americans away from the draconian, draconian mandates and bureaucracy of blue states into more conservative states. So, for instance, Brandon Smith says, I live in Montana, a primary destination for people relocating. And from my experience, he says the majority of these people are conservatives seeking to escape the vaccine and lockdown mandates in places like California, New York and Illinois. They see the writing on the wall and they're trying to get ahead of the economic and social calamity that will surely befall such states. Now, he says, I would also note that home sales have finally begun to flatten in the past six months. But prices are not dropping, which is a trend that needs to be explored further because it illustrates the larger issue of stagflation. So he says, understand, prices aren't just rising because of increased demand. Demand is actually starting to fall in many sectors. Prices are rising because of increased money supply and dollar devaluation, which is not yet being reflected in the dollar index. So take a look at U.S. GDP. You'll see for the past several years, it has tracked in tandem with price inflation. So obviously, if prices inflate, then this means people are spending more, which then leads to higher U.S. GDP. It's like magic, right? In other words, inflation makes it always seem as though the uh, the U.S. GDP is always improving. But this hasn't been the case in the past couple of years. Official GDP has flattened, despite the fact that the U.S. money supply and inflation have rocketed higher. What does that mean? Well, he says, I believe it's a sign of stagflation and a reckoning in 2022. If we examine inflation-adjusted GDP numbers from shadow stats, we can see that gross domestic product has declined rather aggressively in the past couple of years. And he says, we can also see odd tendencies in oil and gasoline prices. Now, while it's true, gas prices have been higher in the past, this does not address the full context of the situation. U.S. travel spending has declined 12% since 2019. And airline travel has dropped at least 21% in the past year. Average gasoline usage dropped after 2019 and still has not recovered. Yet gas prices continue to rise. In other words, travel demand is stagnant, but the prices are increasing. And this is another signal of inflationary pressures and dollar devaluation. See, oil is priced in dollars globally, and therefore any inflation in the dollar will be readily visible in oil. This would explain why pandemic paranoia and reduced travel have not caused gas prices to drop. Now, if the current momentum continues, the majority of necessities in the U.S. will not be affordable for most people by next year. Did you hear what I just said? If the current momentum continues, the majority of necessities in the U.S. will not be affordable for most people by next year. This is why I think food storage makes such 
since. Brandon Smith says we're looking at a fast-moving decline in production along with a swift explosion in prices. In other words, a stagflationary disaster. So why is this happening? Well, he says this is the Federal Reserve's fault. Brandon Smith says, I and many other alternative economists have been warning about the inevitable inflation-stagflation crisis for years. But the most important factor to understand is who is responsible for this event. And he says the mainstream financial media is going to protect the government and the Federal Reserve at all costs during this breakdown. They're going to blame COVID, the lockdowns here and overseas, as well as the supply chain bottleneck. But Brandon Smith says the Fed is the true culprit, though. And while there have been many American presidents and other politicians that have supported the Fed in its inflationary activities, the central bank itself needs to be held accountable for the downturn that is about to occur. This is a process that started back at the founding of the Fed, but spread like cancer after the crash of 2008 and the introduction of 12-plus years of stimulus and bailout measures along with near-zero interest rates. So the pandemic is the perfect cover for the inflationary endgame. Brandon Smith says in 2008, the response to the crisis was to print and pump dollars into banks and corporations in the U.S. and around the globe. This money supply was held in corporate coffers and in central banks overseas, which slowed the effects of inflation. This set the precedent for subversive stimulus policies by giving the Fed a blank check to do whatever it wanted. In 2020, the Fed created trillions more, but this time money was injected directly into the U.S. economy through COVID stimulus checks, PPP loans, and other measures. In the alternative economic field, we call this helicopter money. These dollars triggered a massive retail buying spree in 2020, but more dollars in the economy chasing less goods. Prices are now spiking much higher. So the big discussion today is whether or not the Fed will taper their asset purchases, reduce their balance sheet, and raise interest rates to counter inflation. That's what people are wondering. But he says the fact is it won't matter. Inflation slash stagflation will continue or even accelerate as the Fed tapers. We're going to come back to his article in just a few moments. I have a link in the show notes if you want to check this out yourself. Lots of links contained therein. Some of these terms may be unfamiliar. Work through it. Make yourself understand what's being said here and prepare accordingly. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Got to send some love out there for SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. They are located in St. George, Utah, a family-owned business. That would be Teresa and Eric Alsop. And, yep, if you are into sewing or you know somebody who's into sewing or long-arm quilting or embroidery, they have exactly what you're looking for. They've got the machines. They can service those machines. They can teach you how to use those machines to, uh, to the best effect. They can also get you set up with thread, with fabric, all the things you require. It's all in one place. And they really, they do some fantastic cover, uh, customer service as well. All you got to do is contact them. I would start by going to the website at sewingquiltingcenter.com or sewingandquiltingcenter.com. And when you talk to them, tell them thanks for being a sponsor of this program. So I'm sharing this article from Brandon Smith 
who uh, normally is published on alt-market.us. The Fed has triggered a stagflationary disaster that will hit hard this year. And again, I want to reiterate, I'm really not trying to scare you. I, I don't want to induce panic. But I don't want to deny that shadow that is approaching and, and, and what it means. We're all going to have to prepare as best we can. I don't think there's any perfect way to avoid the pain. But there are things you can do to shore up your situation that, that aren't going to leave you or your family wondering, what are we going to do for food? What are we going to do for heat? What are we going to do you know, to take care of ourselves? It's interesting. In the last segment, I pointed out, Brandon says the big discussion today is whether or not the Fed will taper their asset purchases, reduce their balance sheet, and raise interest rates to counter inflation. What happens when they raise interest rates is that contracts the availability of credit. A lot of businesses have lines of credit on which they run. And when it's not easy to go apply for money and to get money, well, guess what? For some of those businesses, it means they're going to have to close. Guess who wins? Guess who gets the collateral? Yeah, the same people making them the loan. The bankers can't lose. But Brandon says, look, this, the fact is it doesn't matter whether the Fed, do, feds do these, the Fed does these things. Rather, Inflation, stagflation will continue or accelerate even as the Fed tapers. With a taper comes the threat of a flattening yield curve in Treasury bonds, as well as the danger of bonds and dollars being dumped by foreign investors and central banks. Now, if trillions upon trillions of dollars being held overseas come flooding back into the U.S., inflation is going to continue at its current pace or possibly erupt even higher. In fact, the world's ownership of dollars reached a 26-year low recently. What that means is the global transition is away from the dollar toward inflation-resistant investments. It's already starting. And this is not a policy error. He says, I explained this Catch-22 threat in my recent article. The Fed's Catch-22 taper is a weapon, not a policy error. And he says, in that essay, I outlined the Fed's documented history of creating economic disasters that conveniently end up benefiting their friends in the international banks. And why wouldn't it? They're a cartel. He says, I also explained with evidence how the Federal Reserve actually takes its marching orders for the bank or from the Bank for International Settlements, which is a globalist institution, along which, along with the International Monetary Fund and World Economic Forum, is openly seeking a one-world economic system and one-world currency system. He says, I don't believe the Fed's actions are a product of ignorance or stupidity or basic greed. I do not believe the Fed is scrambling to keep the U.S. economy afloat. He says, I believe, according to the evidence, that the Fed knows exactly what it is doing. The pandemic offers a perfect scapegoat for an engineered crash of the U.S. economy, which the Fed is trying to facilitate. Why? Well, because the more desperate people are financially, the easier they are to buy off with false promises and a loaf of bread. They're easier to control. And on top of that, with the U.S. economy reduced to second or third world status, it's a lot easier to sell the public on the predetermined solution, total global centralization and far less freedom. A great reset, you might say. Wink, wink. As the stagflationary crash plays out, he says, never forget who really was the cause of the public suffering. In the fog of national crisis, it's easy for the establishment to shift blame and responsibility and to cloud the truth. 
But he says the inflation calamity is about to get much worse. And as it does, we need to rally newly awakened people to take action against the central bankers and globalists behind it. Interestingly enough, I see where Dan Bongino is uh, is actually uh, launching something called Parallel Economy. And this is in response to the, the not just the deplatforming that we see on you know social media, but the actual deplatforming by banks. Mike Lindell, the owner of MyPillow.com, he uh, he apparently is is has been told he's got thirty days to take all of his banking and move it somewhere else because the banks that he's been working with will no longer work with him. He's too subversive. He's too scary. He's too you know, off that 3 by 5 index card of approved opinion. So I applaud Dan Bongino for what he's doing here. I think that's, I think it's very admirable. Will it be the solution? I don't know. I don't think we need just one solution. I think we need a lot of solutions. I think we need a number of different parallels being built so that if one gets uh, parlored, so to speak, there will be others to take its place. I know it feels like we're up against this this insurmountable foe that has basically all the resources of the world at its disposal. And in some ways, that, that feels like the case. It feels like, yeah, man, they've got all the cards stacked in their favor, and they've had a very long time to get that, uh, that system in order. But I want to remind you that uh, the power of no is still very real. No is still the most powerful word in, in any language. And without your consent, their plans are not going to come to fruition. Now, you're seeing that there are a lot of different ways we can make your life miserable. I mean, come on, the, the vaccine mandates have been proof of this. We're just going to take away everything that you find valuable. If you want to go out to eat, nope, you can't do that. Well, if I, what if I want to go watch a ball game? Nope, can't do that. A show? Nope. Can I go here? Nope. You have to do what we say. Now, remember, you're free to choose. You're free to consent. But until you consent, we're just going to take away everything we can. I I don't know that I've ever seen a more blatant power play to try to bring people to heal. And I know it sounds very uppity, you know, to say, but uh, I'm not going to do it. But I'll take that label. I'll take whatever other labels you want to throw at me. Look, I'm not trying to flex here. But I can tell you in all honesty, I have spent the better part of uh, of my life, at least from for the, for the last 30 years, I have spent a great deal of time and effort learning what my rights are and where they originate. I understand the principles and practices of freedom. Not perfectly. I'm still learning, mind you. But I've put in the hard work of understanding this enough that I feel very confident in knowing where to draw the line and say, that's not going to fly. That's not going to work with me. I will not consent. Now, to some people, that's like, wow, that makes you almost a terrorist. That means you must be some violent, out-of-control individual who's just, you know, going to live, you know, according to your own life and, and damn everybody else. But that's not how I feel at all. 
I am going to make my own decisions. I am going to live as freely as possible. And you know what? It's impossible to live perfectly freely. You can't. There's no place on earth you can go where where you are going to be able to live free of some kind of, you know, government coercion. But I think first and foremost, that freedom starts as a state of mind. And simply by having the mindset that I ultimately get to say whether or not I will consent. That takes the wind out of the sails of a lot of those people with controlling natures. The people who get really offended if you don't come to them and ask permission and pay a small fee for a license, you know, to do what you want to do. See, that's their problem, not mine. I know the difference between right and wrong. I'm very grateful for parents who raised me to understand that difference. I'm grateful for mentors who who also helped me to, to further refine what it means to be a decent human being. And I work on it every day. I also stumble and fall a lot, which the people around me will recognize as, yeah, he does. <laughs> but you have the same power to make those decisions. And it doesn't mean that we see ourselves as better or somehow elevated over everybody else. It simply means we understand our rights. We're willing to stand up and assert them. And with God's help, I'm convinced each of us can make the difference that we were born to make. So my invitation is rise to that challenge. Be who you were born to be. This is The Brian Hyde Show.